Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Bamberger, CEO and founder of Tetra Insights, a qualitative research and insights platform that's raised $7 million in funding. Michael, thanks for chatting with me today. Great to meet you, Brad. Thank you for having me. Not a problem at all, and super excited to chat with you. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and maybe just a bit more about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So I live in Boulder, Colorado. I was born and raised actually in South Florida and then spent a decade in the New York area before I moved out here. Uh, to start my family. And I've been working in technology type businesses most of my life since I was a teenager. So starting as a self-taught web developer, then worked in finance at a private equity firm. I've been working on my own businesses for the past 10 years. So tease me a little bit. I, I love doing outdoor activities. I'm, I'm big into trail running. And I know Boulder is one of the best places you can live in America for outdoor activities. So what's a typical week look like for you? What kind of fun are you having out there? You know, it's unfortunate. It's not as much fun as I would like uh, between running a business and having a five-year-old and a two-year-old. I'm a pretty busy guy. So the only fun I have is at 6 a.m. I wake up and go to the gym and maybe play some basketball. And then on the weekend, sometimes we'll go to the mountains for hiking. But, you know, for me, I'm very focused on the screaming children and the impending dangers of cliffside hiking. So I aspire to enjoy more of Boulder's nature in the near future. But uh, I might be a couple of years away from being fully free. But all joking aside, it is amazing living here. There's tons to do. And on the weekends, getting outside, getting to the, the parks, even just being in a mountainside park is amazing. So we've lived here for four years. And it is as good as you would think. What's the tech scene like there? I just had a founder on from Germany, and, and he was telling me how there's more and more European companies that are opening their U.S. branches in Boulder, which I thought was fascinating, and I hadn't heard that before. Is that accurate? And, and so, you know, what, what is that tech scene like? Can you paint a picture for us? It definitely is accurate. It's a vibrant community. So Boulder plus Denver is pretty sizable when it comes to technology companies, uh, large and small and emerging. So there's a pretty ebullient environment for capital raising. Our last round was led by a local fund uh, here in the Boulder area. There's lots of local funds here, some big ones, some multi-billion dollar funds. So there's a big venture capital scene, which is interesting. And there's tons of technology founders here. Boulder is, I believe, it has the highest concentration of PhDs in the country. So the technical talent here is off the charts good. Uh, and the other thing that's interesting about this place is this is a destination. Not a lot of people who work here, there's certainly a lot of my peers and friends, they didn't grow up here. People came here and chose to come here. Even people who work for companies like Google who had jobs in San Francisco, in the San Francisco area, I should say, they chose to come to the Boulder office, like at the beginning of the pandemic. And since then it's only increased. So it's an incredibly high quality environment for meeting people, for making connections, for hiring, um, for finding investment communities. So definitely, you know, my wife and I, we chose to live here for quality of life purposes, for family purposes, but also for those business purposes. I, moving here from New York, I needed to choose a, a place where I could still develop good relationships and a place that people were willing to come for meetings. So I'd say it's pretty vibrant and only getting better. 
Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, it seems like there ha- there's really everything there, right? You don't have to make a trade-off. Oh, I want nature or oh, I want business. You could have everything there. So that's pretty fascinating. I have some friends who in the morning will go ski at our nearest mountain, which is like 45 minutes away, and then start their first meeting at 10 a.m. So people live some pretty crazy lives here that you couldn't really do elsewhere. Living the Boulder dream. <laughs> Seriously. One day. One day for me. At least I can see the mountains. That's yeah. That's good enough for now. <laughs> Aspirational. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, a few questions we'd like to ask, and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. So first one is what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? So I'm not big on admiration for famous people for whatever reason. Maybe there's something about my psyche I should investigate. But for me, you know, the the people who inspire me are people that I know, who I talk to, who I'm learning from them. And hearing this question, who comes to mind for me is someone you've never heard of probably, which is my good friend, Matt Kligerman. He started a company in Brazil called Escalate Digital. He moved from the U.S. to Brazil. He abandoned a high-paying finance career to start a company concept that he just believed he could do in Brazil that he'd been learning about for years on the side. And he scaled it to thousands of employees and tens of millions of dollars in funding. And he learned to speak Portuguese well enough. He moved there not knowing any, but not just well enough to live in Brazil, but to negotiate multi-million dollar deals with Brazil's largest corporations in Portuguese. He's having those conversations. And he does insane rock climbing. He's living that boulder life you were just talking about. He's come back from like two serious injuries. He's just a, a total badass. And now he's back in the U.S. living the good life. So I admire him and what he's been able to accomplish. He's one of my good friends from high school. And uh, yeah, he's built something pretty incredible. Nice. I love that. What about books? And we got this from Ryan Holiday, who's an author, and he calls them quick books. So a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core. It really influences how you just Think about the world and how you approach your life day to day. Do any Quake books come to mind for you? Yeah, you know, there's the personal side and the business side. They're definitely different. I'll, I'll stick to the business side, if that's okay, unless you're super curious about the personal side. But there's one book that I read that just, it was the right information at the right time for me. And I listened to the audiobook over and over. I read this book over and over. And it's by this guy named Darren Hardy, who's um, a motivational speaker type person. And I came across him by accident. The book's called The Entrepreneur Roller Coaster. And it perfectly explained what I've experienced in my career. And it's really given me the tools to deal with the ups and downs and the emotional toll it takes off founding and running a business. So that one is one I go back to time and time and time again and definitely has impacted me and Darren Hardy in general. Yeah, I wasn't typically interested in that type of Tony Robbins style motivation, but his stuff was just so on point for what it's like to be an entrepreneur that uh, I keep going back to him over and over again. Yeah, I find some of that stuff to be a little bit cheesy, but it just works. <laughs> like at the end of the day, like it does seem to be effective. I've read one of his books. I can't remember what it was. It was about habit building. Uh, I can't remember. The compound effect. Probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what it was. So big fan of his. And yeah, I, I like all that kind of stuff. What other books? You know, cheese. Well, I was just going to say cheesy. You know, cheesy sounds bad, but I put it on all my sandwiches. I, you know, I put it on my pastas. Cheese could be good. So, sometimes you have to question that. Yep, that's true. What about personal books? You teased us there. and said you could go there. Let's let's go into the personal books. Well, I'm going to provide this. This is, you know, maybe a little bit too much information, but this book literally changed my life. And I just want to put it out there for people who maybe experience similar things. There's this book called Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. And for people who dealt with, you know, trouble, just like difficulties maybe with your family life growing up, or for me, it was as an adult, 
it really helped understand what I was going through and give me perspective on things. And interestingly, a lot of like my motivation and a lot of things that drove me, you know, I realized came from maybe not the places I wanted it to. And this book has helped me to recontextualize my entire life and my ambition and everything and deal with a lot of difficult things. So it's not for everyone. You know, I, I recommend it to lots of people that I talk to because of how impactful it was. You're very lucky if it doesn't resonate with you. But for those of you who heard that title and think there might be something there for me, definitely read it because it is life changing. Yeah, I have to guess there's a few people that are going to listen to this who are going to say, huh, yeah, I, I think there could be some interest there. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. That's what I've learned. Now, let's switch gears here and uh, let's dive deeper into Tetra Insights, or we'll just call it Tetra here to, to make it easy. What does Tetra do? What problem do you solve? And, and how does the solution work? So companies generate thousands of hours of audio and video data in the form of user research and, and customer conversations. So what the Tetra platform does is help these organizations to seamlessly collect that data and transform it into actionable customer insights that impact strategy and decision-making. So it's a software platform that we also combine some research services with for enterprise organizations, helping to power the way that they turn this qualitative data into really impactful decision impacting information and insight. I see on the website, you have a testimonial there from a head of product design. Is that who's typically using the platform and leveraging the platform or what are those different use cases? So one of the really interesting things about the market that we sell into is and it, this is not that atypical, but it was certainly a learning process for me. The buyer of our tool, the customer, the person who makes the purchase decision, is typically not someone who's going to be a very active user. So the practitioners of research or the people who are on the front lines having conversations with customers are typically the people who are using our software, but we're selling to the people who manage their groups or who are requiring the value and impact of insight work. So typically our the champions for us at the end user level are designers, user experience professionals, and user experience researchers, sometimes product managers. But the people making the purchase decisions are head of product, head of user experience. And for companies that have this practice, well, uh, pretty built up, they're, they're head of insights or head of customer insights or head of user research. So it's very typical that we are working with a customer who is focused on the outputs but the users are really there creating the data and creating the input. So it's pretty interesting. And can you take us back to 2018? What was it about this problem that made you say, yep, that's it. I'm going to go build a company around this and dedicate the next 5, 10, 15 years of my life to it. Yeah, well, I've really been working in the same problem space for my whole career since I graduated from college in 2009. And I didn't really you know, realize it. It's only in retrospect, I understand. But I worked at this private equity firm where we would buy distressed media and information services companies or assets. And it was my job to create a digital strategy around them. So taking kind of traditional media and publishing businesses and transforming them into digital first businesses. And you know what my job was is to help innovate, come up with what should we build, and then create consensus around it, or at least get the confidence to move forward with decisions. So that's really what I've been doing is helping to collect data to inform decision-making and then using that type of information to get a shared understanding among a, a group of people. And I was more of a quantitatively oriented person. So what I originally went to was what data do we have from the CRM, from our product history or sales history, uh, revenue mix information, customer mix information. I pour through all of that data to try and figure out what we should do. 
And I pretty quickly realized that when you're in the business of buying distressed assets, all of the quantitative data you have, it's essentially a coroner's report, right? Like this is why the business died. And it's not necessarily this wonderful font of insight and wisdom about what we should be doing. It's more clear of, well, let's not do this again because it, it didn't work. It's why we bought this thing in a distressed experience. So what I started doing back then was literally we would be doing diligence on a company or we just bought a company. I just started calling the customer list. I looked at, you know, customers who were spending the most, customers that used to spend a lot and then weren't spending anything. And I just called them and explained to them the situation and asked them questions like, you know, why do you work with this company or why did you stop working with them? And very quickly, I learned that all of that quantitative data we had, it was a waste of my time to even be looking through at the early stages. It's maybe helpful a little bit later down the road, but for figuring out what people want and how to get it to them and what we should build, those conversations became transformative. So actually, I left that private equity firm with that insight of customer development was how I considered it and is like the most critical thing for business success. So I started an, an agency consulting firm, basically, where I did that kind of digital strategy work directly for clients instead of through our private equity firm's portfolio. And from there, I kept going down this path of how do I get people to make better decisions with data and information. Uh, and I ended up co-founding this business called Alpha UX, which is now called Feedback Loop and has since been acquired by another company. And at Feedback Loop, what we did was we helped people generate data very rapidly around new product concepts. So we worked with like innovation teams at large brands. And in early days there, I just went back to the full set of customer discovery stuff. What quantitative data do you have? What third-party reports do we have? And we threw in a handful of customer interviews, target user interviews. And very quickly, the same as I learned at my previous job, when we are giving people word of mouth of real people in the form of quotes or video clips or audio clips directly from the horse's mouth, that is what influences decision makers and strategic thinkers. We could have a dozen pages of charts and graphs and fancy pros about findings, and they would pale in comparison to the 10-minute video clip of five people saying what frustrated them. And that was kind of a magical finding that we had at that business. So we actually tried to scale doing that kind of work more readily. So doing lots of interviews, cutting them up into video clips by theme, by finding, by segment, et cetera. And unfortunately, we weren't able to scale that. The technology just didn't exist. So we were manually like stitching together video clips. And if there were questions about the data, we'd have to go back to the drawing board and spend days, you know, literally doing manual video editing. So we stopped doing that at that company and ended up doing more automated data collection. And when I left that business, I, I had uh, two kind of profound epiphanies that I, I felt like I needed to act on. The first one is this qualitative insight, these real customer interactions in the form of audio and video clips are the most influential form of data and insight I've ever seen in my career. And it was so consistent with what I'd been experiencing over the previous decade, but the technology doesn't exist to use that data readily. So that was the first profound insight. Let's make this qualitative data as easy to capture and utilize as quantitative data is. So that was the first thing that drove me to build Tetra. And the second one is I saw the world around this type of research and insight work changing. So at my last business feedback loop, we were doing research on behalf of customers. And then in year two and three, the people in our meetings were researchers and designers or product managers, and they wanted to do the research themselves with our help. That business didn't go that route, but that was the idea at Tetra. Let's build the tools that allow these organizations to do this work themselves, that allows these practitioners to transform their qualitative data into impactful insights. So a bit of a long origin story, but it's basically been, you know, the last 14 years of my life working on these types of things. 
This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Talk to us about the first paying customers that you were able to land. Obviously, that's something that all startups struggle with, I think, in the early days is how do you get people to give you money when you're relatively new to the market? So can you tell us about those first paying customers? Yes. You know, and I'm definitely fortunate that I had a lot of experience launching new products. So when I started Tetra, this is a process I had done probably a dozen times for other companies or companies I was working for. And it's a process that I still advocate and I'm happy to kind of walk through it in detail. So what it started with for me was my initial customer discovery. And what that was for me was generating a list of leads who seemed to fit the profile of people who would value my solution. So for me, it was very easy. It's user experience researchers, user experience designers. So I generated a list of several hundred leads, like you know, manually going through LinkedIn and pulling contact information. And I sent out a survey to these people basically trying to capture the state of the market asking you know saying that this is a benchmarking report on the state of customer research user research please fill it out and inside that survey there was a bunch of questions that we used for a report but more importantly we used those questions to understand where the pain points were where the opportunities were so i believe in that first survey i put together like six different related product concepts and how people react to them, you know, rate these, rank them. Uh, what do you think about this? What should be the most valuable and why? And then at the end of that survey, I had questions like, uh, would you be willing to participate in a follow-up interview? And also, would you like to participate in the beta testing for products like this when they come to market or are available? So after that first survey, I think I had like over a hundred responses and I sent it out over, you know, several weeks and kept sending out to more and more people. And I had a list of dozens of people who said they would do interviews and dozens of people who said they would be beta testers. So then I did a whole bunch of interviews. This was the initial basis of our deep customer research. So, you know, practicing what we preach and in those conversations, developed some relationships and all those people that I spoke to ended up wanting to be beta testers. And even some I didn't speak to still wanted to be beta testers. So then we went and built the first version of our product, our MVP, as it were. And then we went back to that list and said, hey, we've got a product to test now. Are you interested? And we converted you know, a handful of those people into our first group of beta testers and then grew that beta testing group. And what actually ended up happening for us before we even were trying to charge them, some of our users said, I want to bring this to my team. I, I want us to start using this. Can we pay you? And that's how we got our first paying customers. So it was probably like a three to six month process going from surveying to beta testing to converting to paid customers, but it happened to us organically in that sense, because we were working so closely with these people trying to solve their problems. What I'm seeing in the market is there's a big focus now on ROI. And when I was playing around your website a few days ago, I saw that you have a, a video or a webinar on proving the ROI of research. You have a calculator for calculating the ROI of switching to Tetra. Can you talk us through that ROI story and, and how you think about calculating that ROI? Yeah. So the way we talk about ROI, there's actually two layers to it. So that webinar on ROI is how do researchers or people who use research demonstrate the ROI inside their organization? And the reason we help with that is because that's a question these people are getting asked. The growth of user research and the investment in this type of insight work has exploded in the last three years. 
So now companies are spending real serious money on this type of work. And now they're getting asked questions internally, like how do we assess the impact of this? How do we know it's valuable? So for our customers in the last three years, obviously the last couple of years, the landscape has changed for employees and for groups inside companies. Some groups are just being annihilated kind of blindly to save money. Some are going through like layoffs where it's really looking at the performance of individuals and units to understand what companies need and don't need. So we see a lot of layoffs kind of across the board and organizations and or departments inside organizations having to defend why we deserve to exist, why our budget deserves to expand, or at the very least stay the same. So we help our clients make that case because they're getting more scrutiny around the investment in their area of their business. So it's too probably in the weeds for this conversation about how researchers can quantify that, but we do have a webinar on it. If someone's curious. So that, that's the first part, helping our customers and our users to prove the value of their work and their existential value inside their org. That's the first part. The second part is how do we demonstrate to our clients that giving us money is going to be an ROI for them, right? So they seem the same, but they're very different. So when we explain ROI to our customers, for us, we are a workflow tool. We automate parts of their operations. So we can literally quantify how much more work their existing team is able to do when they're using Tetra. And we can quantify how we can replace future headcount, right? Sometimes that's replacing existing headcount, but we typically like to position it as, as you grow, you will not have to hire more research operations people because the platform enables that. You won't have to hire as many researchers because our AI features automatically analyze some of this data for you and make uh, your researchers time more impactful and valuable. So for us, it's literally looking at the trade-off between doing this without Tetra and doing it with Tetra, both the efficiency gains they get from their current staff and the opportunity cost, not having to be having to hire someone or choose Tetra. We're going to be a more affordable option that's going to be much more productive than an employee. So we are definitely leaning into how we automate and magnify the impact of the current work companies are doing. What's the competitive landscape look like? And then how are you positioned in that landscape? So our category broadly has been growing rapidly over the last three years. So it's changing all the time. Broadly, when I think about competition, I think about what I would consider the legacy players in our industry, which are the larger, more established user research platforms that exist. And then there's the emerging spot solutions. So the spot solutions are taking a component of the research workflow and trying to get great at it. So for example, there's um, a great company called userinterviews.com that all they do is source participants, right? And some of our clients use them and us together. Some of our clients only use us. There's also uh, companies that build just analysis tools and they don't have any research execution. So we compete against these legacy players and then this constellation of spot solutions and our position is, is unique in that we blend organic conversational intelligence with research. So we're the only place that a large organization can run rigorous research studies, automatically capture and analyze organic conversations, and make all that data and insights available in a repository. So we're not trying to just capture their research or just be a conversational intelligence platform or just be a repository. We believe that all of those things work much better when they're together. And we're proving it out with large enterprises who find a lot of economies of scale and value creation when they're centralized to our platform. 
And let's talk about those enterprises that are finding that value. Can you give us an idea of the growth and traction that you're seeing today? Yeah, happy to give some high-level indicators. So since 2020, our revenue is more than double each year, and we're on pace to continue that and surpass that this year. So we've been seeing great growth across the enterprise segment. Those are definitely the companies for us that most readily value the solutions we have. And I'd say the, the thing I'm most proud of in terms of growth is across our enterprise customers who have been with us for two plus years now, we're seeing an average growth rate of more than three times year over year. So that means that they had, let's say, 20 active users in year one, they are getting 60 active users in year two and, and more than triple the amount of data on a platform. And then in year three, they have over 100 active users and they have 10 times the data they put through a platform in year one. So that is what, for me, is the most gratifying thing. We're seeing this organic virality inside our client orgs. As their insight work is becoming transformative, we're embedded in the way that they work. So we have clients where literally our platform is part of their onboarding and training for all of their product staff, you know, potentially thousands of people. So that is that to me is the most exciting type of growth that we're getting because we're an enterprise solution. And for us, seeing that stickiness and expansion really shows me that we are delivering real, meaningful, impactful value for our clients and not just kind of short-term transactional value, which is not what we're trying to do. From a marketing perspective, what are you doing to rise above the noise and achieve that type of growth? You know, obviously everyone in tech has had a, a pretty tough year or maybe 18 months now. And I think a lot of companies have been crushed, but you're growing. So tell us, what are you, what are you doing and how are you achieving that? So the key for us has been focusing on what we're best at. Certainly over the last 18 months, it's been the buying decision-making has changed entirely. And what we've learned is that sharing our expertise and our opinions have been hugely, hugely valuable. So developing trust through content. We have unique and often counterintuitive perspectives on the world that we serve, and we're not afraid to share them. And at first we were trying to, I'd say, you know, be a little bit more cautious and kind of follow the prevailing wisdom, right? There, there was like some concepts out there that were starting to emerge in our category, one called like atomic research, atomic nuggets. And originally it's like, let's take these themes that are popular and explain how you can do them on Tetra. And that certainly was good, but sharing something completely different has been better. So leaning into our expertise, trusting our expertise and sharing that through content has attracted the right kind of people. So, you know, we do these webinars, like you mentioned, that are about setting goals and defining your strategy and impact tracking and ROI calculation. These things that are really valuable for business leaders inside these practices. And when they watch a couple of our webinars, they typically reach out to us and we've signed large six-figure contracts from people who just watched a couple of webinars. That's their only interaction with our brand. And then they signed up to talk to us. So that has been, I'd say, the most helpful for us. It's obviously distributing that content is the challenge to get to scale, but it's been the way that we've been able to really cut through the noise and get these large contracts with large enterprises who trust us more readily once they've heard our perspectives. And as I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised $7 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout that journey? Oh my God, so much. So this is my second venture-backed business. The last business, I was not the CEO. So I was a I was riding shotgun in the fundraising process. And driving the process as the CEO is very different. So there's a lot of lessons I've learned. I'd say the one of the key lessons that I've learned, and this is definitely only comes with experiences, you definitely want to choose your investors carefully. 
these are important, long-term, often career-defining relationships. And I think a lot of founders find themselves in a position where they take the term sheet they have, or they feel like they have to settle for whatever offers available because they don't want to lose it. And I'd say that the perspective should be, it's your company and you should be protective of who gets to be part of it. You're doing investors a favor by letting them into your business. They're not doing you a favor by writing you a check. It's They're doing a business transaction and you are giving them the opportunity of a lifetime. I think that's the mindset that you have to have even when things are hard. And I've got some wonderful investors who I consider mentors and friends and they've changed definitely the trajectory of my life and career. Um, I just wish they were all like that. And you know, if I could go back in time, I don't know if I would make different decisions, but I would definitely spend more time trying to understand exactly what my relationship is going to be like with these people who are going to now be part of the second most important thing in my life, right? My family is number one and my business is number two. And the same scrutiny that I should give to someone, you know, who's going to come and live in my house with my family, you should give to your investors because they are that important, certainly at the early stages. Love that advice. Now, let's imagine you were starting the company again today from scratch. Based on everything that you've learned so far since launching, what would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself? So for myself, it's pretty clear. I don't know if this applies to everyone, but for me, if I could go back in time, I would overinvest in senior engineers early. And I mean very specifically senior engineers. So not engineering leadership, not affordable engineering, high quality, impactful senior engineers who can do everything you need technically and help mentor and train the more junior engineers. I've only learned that lesson in the last few years, how critical these senior engineers are. And I think I overestimated the impact of engineering leadership and underestimated the impact of extremely talented senior engineers. So definitely I made hiring decisions in the early days that were more affordable, more scrappy. I would go back and change that. And hire a few senior engineers, even though it would have been very expensive. Final question for you. Let's zoom out. Let's go three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building? So right now we're entering this exciting next stages of scaling. I'm very fortunate that we have remained unscathed during this crazy period of time. We went into 2023. I decided we're not going to raise capital this year. So let's prepare our business so that we don't have to raise capital. And that's helped us to get to this position. And now we're already deployed as the central research and insights platform for Fortune 50 companies, trillion dollar market cap businesses. I mean, it's incredible. So now our next step is to become the standard. We want every company that prioritizes user experience to centralize their research and insight work to Tetra. We are the best solution for companies that take this work really seriously and rely on these insights. So that's the goal. Uh, in the next five years, we should be the de facto standard deployed broadly across these types of companies. Amazing. I love the vision. I love what you're building. And I, I love the approach here. Michael, we are up on time. So we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if any founders listening in just want to get in touch or just follow along with your journey as you build and execute, where should they go? LinkedIn. It's an easy way to find me. Michael Bamberger is my name. Qualitative Research Insights is my gang. You'll find me there. And then there's tetrainsights.com. If you click any of those contact buttons, um, it, it can get to me. So feel free to reach out. I do love talking to other founders, other CEOs. If you are at a difficult part of your journey, having someone to talk to is extremely helpful, especially when it comes to brainstorming. So I've relied on other founders and CEOs to help me and um, I want to pay that for it. So definitely don't hesitate to reach out. I love it. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Really appreciate it and really enjoyed our conversation. 
Thank you, Brett. Me as well. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 